Mark 6, 30-52. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they found out, they, have, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, and while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished, astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Good morning, Resurrection. Um, as Frankie mentioned, my name is Brian Feenstra. I am one of the uh, uh, ruling elders here at Resurrection. Uh, and it is my pleasure and my privilege to bring to you the Word of God as we find it in Mark 6. Um, I'm going to start with a little confession. Um, uh, when Frankie assigned this text to me, I thought, great, um, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. I'm sure they haven't heard that one before. How much uh, original content can I come up with? But God's been gracious. Uh, he's taught me some new things. He's reminded me of some old things, and so I hope uh, this uh, will be of encouragement for you as well. So let's pray as we start. God, you are good. You are gracious. Um, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text in front of us this morning. Would you use your fragile, your fallible servant to preach that word? Would you encourage us where we need encouragement? Would you strengthen us where we need strengthening? Would you challenge us where we need to be challenged? 
We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, I'm going to start with a, a somewhat sta a sad story. My, my grandmother, she lived through World War II in Holland. And as the war progressed, her family had less and less food. One night, the family was called to the dinner table, which was said as it normally was. And my, my great-grandfather opened the meal with prayer, as he normally did. But on this night, there was no food, only empty plates. The family sat, quietly talking, as they normally did, but this time only looking at each other, rather than eating. And then my great-grandfather, he, he read the Bible and prayed again, as they normally did, and they quietly cleaned up, and they all went to bed. This happened for a number of days, until my grandmother became so weak that on her way up to her room, she actually collapsed um, just from pure uh, malnutrition. If you're a Christian here this morning, you may have heard comments from people saying things like, why would a God who is powerful and good allow such evil and suffering to happen, right? Jesus himself heard this sort of refrain as he, as he hung on the cross, he heard this, he said, they said to him, if you really are the king of the Jews, just come down from the cross and save yourself. This life, as many of us know and experience, it's filled with hardship and adversary, adversity and difficulty. And it's not always easy to reconcile that with the, with the belief in a God who is powerful and at the same time good. So our passage today, uh, we run into two scenes of hardship. The first one, Jesus confronts the physical reality of, of the hunger of 5,000 people. And in the second, Jesus confronts the physical need for safety of his disciples as they, as they make their way through a raging storm. And I think Mark joins the two stories together, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water in verse 52, where he explains the disciples' amazement, um, or sorry, where, where Mark explains the, the disciples' amazement at Jesus walking on the water with their lack of understanding of the bread. We're going to talk about that. So there, there's a connected significance of these two stories. And so I'm going to take you back and forth between these two stories. We're going to review things differently a couple times, but I, I want to do that because I want to pick up on three characteristics of Jesus that I think will help us navigate through those physical pains and through those spiritual storms of life, okay? So here they are. Here are the three things I want to look at. First, Jesus is able to help you through those things. Secondly, he's willing to help you. And third, and finally, I want to point out that he may help you in unexpected and unlikely ways. Okay, so again, Jesus is able to help, he's willing to help, and he's going to help you in unexpected and unlikely ways. Okay, point one, Jesus is able to help. Now, 
I need to warn you, first of all, that this first point, it's going to require you to keep an open mind, okay? I was skeptical at first as I read through the commentaries, but as you start getting into it, the case becomes more and more convincing. So I'm going to try to show you that Jesus is telling us something more than just, I'm a fancy miracle worker, or I'm a man who likes to make controversial statements to get noticed. I want to show you that he's actually reminding us of, of things in the Old Testament scripture, and then foreshadowing things that are yet to come. Okay, and in doing that, Jesus is going to be saying two things. One, know that I am God, and two, know that I am powerful but not because of my miracles. So let's unpack that, point one, or sub-point one. In the first parable, have a look at that, the feeding of the 5,000, look at verse 32. We see Jesus is in a remote, desolate place with no food. In verse 41, Jesus then takes the bread, he breaks it, and he does the same with the two fish. And then he distributes that bread and fish to organized groups of men, women, and children. And in verse 42, we read, they all ate and they were satisfied. Okay, so, so keep those things in mind. And, and next, we're going we're gonna to reach back all the way back into the book of Exodus, written thousands of years before this. And if you have a Bible, feel free to open that to Exodus 16. Okay? Here, we're, we're going to read about the nation of Israel out in the desert, and they begin to grumble because they have no food. So here's what Exodus 16 has to say. I'm going to start at verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate the food, all the food we wanted. But you, you've brought us out to this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Wow. Parents out there, uh, maybe you've experienced this, I know I have with my kids. Think of an afternoon where you and your kids, you, you miss a meal, things drag on, everyone's getting a little hangry. Now multiply that by like a hundred. Maybe more fittingly, think of the, the heart-wrenching story I told you about my grandmother and the lack of food that she had. You know, I think we can give the Israelites a hard time for their grumbling, but I think when we understand, when we put ourselves into where they are, I think, I think it, tells, it helps us appreciate this. The, it gives you an idea. The, the Israelites, they're, they're triumphantly, they emerge from the Red Sea, they escape the grasp of the Egyptians, and then they, they're, they're on, on that high, and then the, their food supplies run out, toddlers are hungry, babies are crying. The, ad the adults don't know if there's another meal coming or if they're just going to be left out in the desert to die. And so the people begin to grumble. And so the Lord says to Moses, I've heard your grumbling, and so I'm going to make it rain. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And he does. Every day for the next 40 years, the Israelites had as much manna as they needed for that day. And similarly, that, that evening, the Lord sent a swarm of, of quail, just covering the entire camp, providing them with as much meat as they needed for that day. So perhaps you now ask, well, why God? Why let humans suffer and provide them with more than they need? Why for my grandmother? Why for the Israelites? These are your people, after all. But Exodus 12, or sorry, Exodus 16, verse 12, read a little further. 
gives us the profound reason for this. This is God speaking. He says, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Now listen. Then he says, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So in our parable, this, or sorry, in our story this morning, I think Jesus is, is he's reaching back to the story here, and he's telling us now, know me. Know that I am the Lord your God. I'm not just a man, I am the Lord your God. You see, God doesn't just allow terrible circumstances in our lives to happen because he's flippant with our physical needs. But he wants us to have something even more important than food. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know that he is our God. But not only that, not only does Jesus want us to know that he is God, he wants us to know that he is powerful, he is able, but not because of his miracles. So let's look at that, the second story now of, of Jesus walking on the water. In this next story, there, there are also, unsurprisingly, a few parallels with the book of Exodus. So consider the following. In verse 45, Jesus makes his disciples go into the boat, and then he goes on a mountain to pray. So commentators say that this may parallel Moses going up Mount Sinai to commune with God. Okay? In verse 47, the disciples are in a boat in the middle of the lake. This could parallel the Israelites going through the Red Sea on dry land. And in verse 51, just as Jesus controls the sea here, God shows in, 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 early, in the Old Testament that he controls the sea as Israel crosses it in Exodus. But here's the most striking parallel, I think. And perhaps you noticed it as why I read it this morning. Look at verse 48 of our text. He, that's Jesus, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. Now listen, he was about to pass by them. But when he saw them walking on the lake, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because they, they all saw him and they were terrified. Something strikey there too? He was about to pass by them. Doesn't that seem odd? And then the disciples, they cry out because they're terrified. Why? Surely they would know this was Jesus. I was confused by this uh, verse as well until Frankie gently pointed out to me another Old Testament passage with similar language. There's one key moment in the Old Testament where, where God describes himself in this sort of way. In Exodus 33, there's, there's an account of Moses communing with God while he is on the mountain. So listen to, to what God wants you to know about who he is. Exodus 33:18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, that's God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place behind me where you shall stand on the rock, and I, while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of, my, of, of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And so in the next chapter, Exodus 34, God passes by Moses 
And then Moses bows his head in worship. And then later Moses comes down from that mountain and his, his face is, is shining, it's, it's radiating after talking with God. And Aaron and, and all the people of Israel, when they see Moses, Exodus says, they were afraid to come near him. So here's the point. By doing these miracles in our text this morning, Jesus is not saying I am powerful because of these miracles. He's telling us to see the miracles as a confirmation or a sign that he is the same God of the Old Testament, the God of Exodus, unbelievably powerful and strong and blinding in glory. That's who he is. And he tells us he's got something better in store for us. New York City pastor Tim Keller points out that in our culture today, People do magic or fancy shows or pyrotechnics or special effects to impress people. Right? Perhaps you've seen some of those, those at a, an arena or a, or a stadium. And, um, but the idea is we, we do those things to evoke an image of, of strength or power. But, he says, that's not, what a, that's not what Jesus is intending to do with his miracles. See, the miracles aren't meant to show us the magnitude of God's power, but rather the redemptive purpose of his power. They point us back again uh, as a piece of the continuing story with the rest of scripture. And they point us forward to a greater reality where all the corrupted and broken things of this earth will be restored. A time when people have no need for food, where world hunger won't exist where poverty won't exist, where injustice and disease won't exist, where there'll be no storms and no destruction of this earth, no injury or death or sickness, but only safety. And someday, Revelation tells us, that's going to be ours. That's going to be ours. And so the bread being multiplied, uh, it reminds us now of who God is, the God of the Old Testament who is powerful, and it shows us also the intention of that power. And this leads us to point two. Point two, Jesus is not only powerful, but he's willing. You see, Jesus is not only supremely powerful, making him able to help us in our weakness, he's also willing to help us. There's several examples of this scattered through our text this morning, so we're going to go through them now. Let's go back to the feeding of the 5,000. Look at verse 34. When Jesus landed and he saw a large crowd, listen, listen to what it says, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. The word compassion in our text here, it's intense. It has its root in the Greek word for spleen. You see, Jesus' compassion is, in a sense, is, is deep and visceral and emotional and gooey and, and empathetic. And so when Jesus saw the thousands of people in the crowd without a shepherd, he felt it. It was like a, a pit in his stomach. And so he taught them at great length. When the time grew late and they needed to eat, he didn't just simply send them away like his disciples wanted to, but he provided for them. So that's one example of Jesus' compassion. Next, look at verse 45. Immediately it says, Jesus made his disciples to get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. 
It's easy to miss. I missed it uh, a couple times. But notice the words, he made his disciples. Given the first point that Jesus is God and powerful, he certainly knew that the, the storm the disciples were going to be entering as they, as they crossed the lake. And yet, and yet, he forced them to get out into the boat anyways. But although he, he pushed them off into the sea with a gale certain to come upon them, verse 48 says something beautiful. It says, he also saw his disciples. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. So at this point, um, a commentator I read suggested that um, it's estimated the disciples were probably a few miles out at sea in the deepest part of the lake, and it was pitch black, being the fourth watch of the night, about 3 a.m., and there were strong winds, as we read. And yet, in the midst of all of that, Jesus still sees his disciples. You see, Jesus doesn't just send you off into the sea of this life alone. He sees you, and he cares for you. I don't know about you, but some days I go through life and I feel pretty alone. There are forces working against me. It feels dark. It feels lonely, but our text reminds us that God sees us in our distress, and he comes to us during the darkest part of the night, the deepest part of the lake, and at the windiest of times. Now look again at the second part of verse 48. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake, and he was about to pass by them. When, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because they all saw him and they were terrified. I'm positive that the same compassion that we saw in the feeding of the 5,000 is here now again as Jesus looks out over the water and sees his disciples struggling, fearful, crying for help. You see, Jesus clearly cares for his disciples. And so he comforts them and he takes action. As the disciples cry out, thinking they've, they've seen this ghost, Jesus doesn't repudiate them for their lack of understanding or even recoil at who he is, but he's patient and provides this calming assurance. He says, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. Not only does Jesus speak comfort to his disciples, he gets into the boat with them. He meets them where they are at, and he's willing to join them in their suffering. Friends, I, I hope you can start to see now that not only is Jesus a supremely powerful God, able to help you in any way, but he's also supremely compassionate, willing to help you in your darkest hour. And so likewise, I think we ought to be exercising the same deep, visceral compassion to ourselves and to our neighbors. Let's start about yourself. Do some of you have tendencies to self-critique? I know I do. If that's you this morning, please don't do this. You don't make yourself more lovely to Jesus by beating yourself up. He's already compassionate. He already cares for you. How about for our neighbors? Look at verse 52. It's as beautiful as it is perplexing. And they were completely, this is the disciples, they were completely amazed. 
for they had not yet understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Isn't that beautiful? Despite the disciples having hardened hearts, they, they don't get it, Jesus still has compassion on them. And so if you're here this morning and, and you don't know Jesus yet, please know, please know, he has compassion on you too. He wants to take care of you. And if you are a Christian, please know, please know that you ought to be showing the same deep, visceral, emotional, gooey, empathetic compassion to our neighbors, friends, family members, colleagues who don't know Jesus yet. Okay, point three. We're moving along here. He's, he, he, he'll help you now in unexpected and unlikely ways. Okay, we, we've seen that Jesus is willing to help. He's able to help. And now I want to warn you. He may help you in unexpected and unlikely ways. So let's start with unexpected. So here's a little secret that maybe ruins uh, maybe an idyllic image you have of, you know, Jesus at a picnic, green grass, red tablecloths, you know, that sort of, that sort of scene. Probably not what's happening here. Um, commentators actually suggest that the 5,000 uh, who gather ahead of Jesus, they're actually a group of zealot uh, revolutionaries, uh, resistors to the Roman Empire, uh, freedom fighters, if you will. And John uh, 6:15, his account of this actually makes the clearest reference to this when he says, they intended to come and make him king by force. So they actually wanted a revolutionary leader. They were yearning for a king and for a revolution. But instead of acquiescing that request, Jesus begins to teach and preach the gospel. And in doing that, he actually repudiates the request to, to make him king by, by talking about something else, about bread. You know, in our, our modern-day culture, I don't think bread means as much symbolically um, as, as it did back then, because we see bread as uh, a variety of carbohydrates, from scones to uh, gluten-free bread to maybe your, your favorite sourdough, right? But in Jesus' day, where food was less certain, with less options, bread meant life. It was sustenance. It's what you needed to survive. And so Jesus describes the gospel like bread. It gives life. It's, it's needed for your survival. So here's two examples of elsewhere in Scripture. Matthew 4, Jesus quotes God in Deuteronomy 8.3, which says, Man does not live by bread alone. You know it? But by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus is saying here, God's word equals bread. How about John 6? John 6, Jesus says to his disciples, very, very, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. But do not work for bread that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, to which the Son of Man will give you. See, Jesus is saying the miracles, they're not about the bread. It's not about filling you for that day like the manna did. But rather, he's saying, you have a deeper hunger. You have a hunger for God that only I can fill. When we looked back and compared Exodus with our text this morning, we saw, we saw Jesus emerging as a bit of a second Moses. And the bread, it paralleled the manna that was given to the Israelites, right? 
But there's also something here that points us forward. Several chapters later in the book of Mark, Mark 14, we're going to read the following. And as they were eating, he, that's Jesus, took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. You see, Jesus is not just a second Moses. He's the ultimate Moses. He's not just giving us what we need for the day. God told the Israelites way back then already that, that man, it wasn't going to be enough. It would only be good for that day. And just as Jesus, and Jesus is not just looking back and reminding us that he is God, which is true. He's also looking forward, reminding us of what the bread is all really about. The manna, the Passover, the five loaves, it's about his body, broken for you. And after you, you eat of it, then, and only then, are you going to be truly satisfied. You see, the 5,000 people that wanted Jesus to, to, they wanted Jesus to meet their need of transforming society around them and, and, and stopping the oppression that they felt by making into him into something that he wasn't. But Jesus said, no, no, that's not what you need. That's not what's going to fix your life's problems. But I do have something else that will. And so, until you can fill that hunger, all those revolutionary intentions, they're going to be meaningless. And I think we see people in our world around us with that hunger, trying to fill it in various ways today, don't we? Perhaps not outright revolution, but more subtle ways. And I think this is true for Christians and non-Christians alike. Perhaps it's job stability. Perhaps it's your hope in an ideal family, or an ideal vacation, or an ideal spouse, or maybe some ideal sense of government or societal transformation. And look, none of those things are necessarily bad, but Jesus tells us, don't put your hope in them. They're not going to fill the hunger of your soul. Only I will. Okay, so that was unexpected for them, but now... Jesus, Jesus' help may also come in sometimes unlikely ways. In the feeding of the 5,000, we also get a command from Jesus to trust him in impossible situations. He's saying, know me and trust me because you can't do this on your own. You may have food, but it's inadequate. You only have a, five, you only have a few loaves of bread and a couple fish. And the work that I'm calling you to do, it's impossible. There are over 5,000 souls to feed. It's going to take a miracle, right? Many of you know Frankie, um, our uh, associate pastor here. Uh, you know that he's going to be going to plant a church in Gatineau, I think, a few months from now, beginning of next year. Frankie is only going to have a few loaves of bread and a couple fish. He's going to be carrying with him maybe a few families from this church, some friends from the Gatineau side, and maybe just enough money to support himself for the first while. On top of that, as much as we all love Frankie, and, his, and we love his preaching and his good gifts, he's still only a man. He's not going to be able to change souls. And on top of that, 
it gets worse. He's going into one of the most secularized provinces of one of the most secularized countries in the world where years of Catholicism and abuse from the church have inoculated people against Christianity. So, what do you think his chances are? I'll tell you. 100%. Some of you might think, well, that's a little optimistic. I, I'd peg at maybe 30%, 50%. I don't know. I say 100%. Here's why. Because it's not about Frankie or about how many people help him or about how much money he fundraises. It's all about Jesus. It's not about Frankie or Elena, who's fantastic as well. It's all about Jesus. See, Jesus doesn't need our bread. He doesn't need our couple fish. He's telling you something this morning. He's telling you that he is enough. He's going to take what little you have and he's going to multiply it and he's going to multiply it and he's going to multiply it again and again and again. To paraphrase Keller here again, we aren't called to the tasks that we are adequate or qualified for. Rather, it's our inadequacy that God uses to demonstrate his power. Even though there are strong winds ahead of us, when we push forward, not in spite of them, but because of them, then God's power and his glory is revealed in us. And on that note, perhaps some of you are feeling God's tug on your heart this morning to help a guy like Frankie and Elena, but you feel inadequate. And I want you to know that that's okay to feel that way because God can and he will work through whatever shortcomings you have. You see, it's only when you know that you are inadequate and yet you do it anyways, then are you actually ready. It wouldn't it be great, wouldn't it be great if you answered that call and you got to witness his power and his glory and seeing Gatineau Church further his kingdom? Wouldn't that be awesome? But this just isn't about Frankie and those who want to join him. It's for all of you as well, Resurrection Church. We love you. We need you here too. We, uh, we, we have to further our mission for Ottawa as well. I think we've mentioned this as elders before, but every year, um, the elders of Resurrection, we are just amazed by the impossible prayer requests that you submit and the reports on, on how God is actually answering so many of those prayers that, that humanly, humanly speaking just seemed way out of reach. It's beautiful. But not only that, we're amazed by the number of you that, that long after and, and pray for the souls of your neighbors, your friends, your colleagues, and, and, and others, that comes out in those requests. And that's really encouraging for us because it tells us that this church is still on mission. We're going out and we're, we're meeting and we're caring for and we're praying for people who don't know Jesus yet. And that means there are going to be times when Jesus is going to be pushing that boat offshore, forcing you out of your comfort zone and into the storm because he cares for you and he cares for them. And so as you, you give up your few loaves of, of, of bread and your fish 
things are going to get messy. They're going to get messy. They're going to get hard. They may require certain sacrifices. They're going to be strong winds against you, even fears and doubts. But through all that, remember, he sees you. Not just a few miles away from now, but, but from heaven himself, he sees you every single moment of every single situation, the good ones and the bad ones. And he says to you in the midst of that storm, fear not, it is I. I am able to help you. I am the, the God of the Old Testament, the God who is unbelievably powerful and strong and blinding in glory. That's me. But not just that. I'm willing. I'm willing to help you because I'm compassionate and I care for you. And I have come into the boat and I've shared in your suffering. So friends, as we go out, as you go out on your mission at work, at school, as you meet people in your neighborhoods, as you host street, bar, uh, street parties and barbecues over the summer, as you pray over and long after the souls of your friends and family, as you navigate your way through the storms of life and experience the physical pains, remember these three things. He, Jesus, he's able to help you. He's willing to help you. And sometimes he's going to help you in unexpected and unlikely ways. What a beautiful Savior we have. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, King Jesus, we thank you for being supremely powerful and supremely compassionate. For being able and willing to, to help us as we navigate through the spiritual headwinds and the physical pains of this life. We thank you that you point us to a greater reality where there will be no more suffering. And so in the meantime, we ask for your help, God. Help us to be faithful in your calling. Help us to respond to your call on our lives, even if we feel insufficient. Help us to trust your power, that we will use our inabilities for your glory, loving our neighbors and furthering your kingdom. It's in the powerful and compassionate name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.